I'm Grant Haver. I'm Zoe Weinberg. And this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. This week, we have something special for you. We're doing a crossover episode with the excellent Cyber.RAR podcast, which is a podcast from six Harvard Kennedy School students bound by their common conviction. The field of cybersecurity is rapidly evolving, yet the national security field is falling behind. We're joined to talk about the show by two of the hosts, Michaela Lee and Bethan Saunders. Bethan is a second year student at Harvard's Kennedy School, and Michaela recently graduated and is currently a security fellow with the Krebs Stamos Group. Y'all, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us, Grant. It's great to be here with you at Zoe. What made you guys both decide to pursue cybersecurity issues broadly? Yeah, that's a great question, Grant, and something I've been thinking about as I have been going through my two years at Harvard Kennedy School. I did four years in finance. So going to HKS and doing my MPP is a huge pivot. And what I realized after being in the private sector for a couple of years is that areas like cybersecurity and technology are the gaps between the public sector and the private sector are so huge. And there's a lot of misunderstandings and a lot of space that really needs a lot of bridges that need to be built. And I felt for me, that was the perfect intersection of my interest in national security, my goal for a career in public service, and then also leveraging my experience and cybersecurity and tech, just every problem, every discussion is always so fascinating and exciting. And I want to be part of, yeah, part of the, uh, the tough conversations and cyber.rer is a part of that. I also came at cybersecurity from a roundabout way, but a very different place that I started at compared to Bethan. I worked at a nonprofit in San Francisco for about five years and focused at the intersection of human rights and emerging technologies. We worked with tech companies to identify human rights harms and abuses that come from the use of their products. And we touched on everything from mis- and disinformation and hate speech on social media platforms to AI and facial recognition and some of the discriminatory outcomes that can result from those types of products. It was really, really interesting work. And I continue being interested in those issues, particularly when it comes to cybersecurity and the actual social and human impacts that cyber attacks and incidents can have. What was the motivation for starting a podcast on this topic? And also, what does the name mean? Yeah, it's a very benign very benign motivation. We started off wanting an opportunity to talk more about cyber policy issues with fellow students who are interested in this, and particularly with our friends at the Harvard Kennedy School. There are some classes at HKS that touch on these topics, but we really wanted to do a deep dive. So it started with the six of us just getting into a room and talking about these issues together. And instead of creating a final paper as our project, we decided to do a podcast instead. And it's, it snowballed a bit from there, but it's been a really, really fun way to engage on issues that are important to us and to do so from pretty diverse and unique perspectives. Each of us come with a, a bit of a different professional and personal background that we bring to these conversations, which has been a lot of fun. Bethan, you want to talk a little bit about the name? Cyber.rar is a play on the project or the class we created. It stands for reading and research. 
which in historically at HKS, you write a 25 page paper. And again, we were like, you know what, we're going to do something different. We're going to make a podcast. We want to talk about cybersecurity and someone will have to listen um, as opposed to reading a 25 page paper. It definitely was more fun. And yeah, so cyber.rer is a play on that. And RER is also a file type. It is a, is a type of file that is used to exploit vulnerabilities. And there's also, it's a risk assessment review, which is a another cyber phrase in the, very, in the world of acronyms of cybersecurity. So, and also we, we do love to call it affectionately cyber.rar. If you listen to the end of the podcast, we always have a little, a little sign off. I like the nerdy, various cyber references. And I have to say, I thought it might be a risk assessment review and I'm a little bit confused, but now it makes sense. Am I right that all of the hosts are female? So that's like pretty unusual. It feels to me in most rooms of people talking about cybersecurity. And I'm curious how you, whether that has like figured into your thinking about bringing new voices and perspectives to cybersecurity issues. And, and how you feel like the podcast has been able to, to contribute in that way. Yeah, Zoe, I'm really glad you brought that up because we are five women and one non-binary person. And the reason we were so excited about doing this podcast together is because it, to that exact point, we want to, one, we wanted to spend time together and talk about interesting policy questions, but two, bringing together a group of people who typically aren't the loudest voices in the room or aren't even at the table. And so the six of us together, we all have very different backgrounds. We are all, and you're not the faces you see sitting at the table who are making all these decisions in cyber policy and tech and national security. And that was a really big driver. I think at the beginning, we realized as the podcast recorded that there are so few people doing this type of work and talking about and, and highlighting young voices. And we realized as the podcast went on, like, wow, we are really filling in a gap. And I just felt more and more excited about the work we were doing and realizing we really have to dig in to making sure we're inviting folks on the podcast who may not have the same platform, who may have a diverse background, who aren't getting the airtime that they need in the more traditional national security cyberspaces. Yeah, I feel like I've been in very few cybersecurity conversations that are not dominated by men. So, <laughs> yep, yep, same. I feel like that that is an experience we've all we have all felt and will continue to. And that's what's so exciting about our podcast and also yours is that we're, we're kind of chipping away at that, at that wall and those silos. So other than, of course, elevating young and diverse voices, which I think is something both of us agree on in, in terms of our podcasts, has your podcast made you find different issues that other people are ignoring? Yeah, I think so. It's been such a wild ride learning so much about issues that are important to us and yet we don't see talked about or represented often. Eva Galperin was one of our guests and she is so focused and such an expert in stalkerware, which primarily affects women as victims of stalkerware. And there are also a number of ways in which we bring kind of a different lens or different perspective to the conversation as well that's not gender specific. So Grace, for example, in their episode on hacktivism, talked about their experience working on campaigns and being a young person in these kind of grassroots movements and what that looks like in the cyber and digital world as well. So those types of perspectives, I think both from a gender perspective and from an age perspective are different than maybe what we 
here in the traditional space. Yeah. And another exciting part is on the background piece. I came from finance. Michaela came from the human rights tech space. Grace was a signal officer. Winona was at Google. Sophie is at MITRE and currently still working there. And Danny, our other co-host, came from finance and a few other careers before. So we have such a diverse group. And what is exciting about that is some of the some of our podcasts get pretty spicy in terms of we do have a lot of debates and I wouldn't say arguments, but but strong disagreements, which I think make it a really exciting, exciting experience and, and hopefully a good listen. What would you say is the spiciest debate that you guys have had or maybe an issue you want to go back to because you know there's going to be some some tension and some disagreement? One that we didn't have a chance to touch on in the actual recorded podcast, but came up in some of the behind the scenes that we ended up cutting was a bit of a conversation about privacy and how much of our data we give to large companies. That's an issue that I think would be interesting to pursue a little bit further. And then there are also some strong opinions on China and Russia that have been brought up in previous episodes too. And I think as tensions increase, as situations in Ukraine and Taiwan change, it'd be interesting to go back to those and revive some of those debates that we've had on air. Is there an episode that has made one of you change your mind about a topic or surprised you? One that really stood out to me was the Cyber Mercenaries episode. We called a Tangled Web Cyber Mercenaries. How do you regulate an industry that operates so far in the shadows? And I think for me is that quote, how you, you know, an industry that's in the shadows is really indicative of that. I didn't really know a lot about cyber mercenaries either. I didn't really understand what their both benefit and risk was. And so cyber tech happens in the private markets, right? It's the majority of type cyber capabilities are operated not by the government, but by private sector actors, companies, et cetera. I was having this conversation with someone I was trying to get to come on the podcast. Unfortunately, they said no. But something that stood out to me from our conversation is what makes cybercom so different for the general or commander who runs it is that they can't see their own battlefield. And I thought that was super, super interesting in terms of how different cyber as a landscape, as a battlefield, as a sector as an institution is. And the cyber mercenaries are such a big part of that. And that was an area I really had no idea about. And our podcasts, our episode really dove into that in new ways. It was very compelling. But that's what's so exciting, I think, about having such a diverse group and so many interesting issues is every episode I'm learning something new. Yeah, the episode that we did on vulnerable populations really changed my thinking, maybe not changed my entire opinion on a topic, but it started off with the kernel of an idea that I'd been mulling on for a while. And over the course of having conversations, both with the other co-hosts, as well as with our expert interviewee, felt like I was able to understand the issue better. And we were talking about climate change and the way that that can be used as a model in, in some cases for cybersecurity, thinking of cyber less as a domain of war or a domain of crime, but instead thinking about it in the way that we think about climate change, where our entire ecosystem is becoming more vulnerable. And these vulnerabilities can only be combated by resilience of the most resilience for the most vulnerable populations. So really thinking more in a more targeted sense about how 
the ecosystem is more and more reliant on digital infrastructure and how that's also becoming more and more vulnerable. That mirrored climate in a way that I hadn't fully thought about before or articulated. And just talking it through with folks and having the opportunity to do so through this podcast was incredibly informative for me. We had a similar experience. We had Kate Guy on the show towards the beginning of our run, and she's a climate expert. Now she works in the admin. And she also brought up the potential linkages between cyber and climate. How do you think about cyber as a metaphor? Because I think oftentimes when we talk about cybersecurity as an issue, you know, it's, oh, it's like global health. It's like climate change. It's like biological warfare, but it's not those things, right? How do you guys now position in your mind when you're trying to communicate about cyber, what cyber is? I'll be really interested to hear what Bethan thinks about this too, but I totally agree with you. I've heard so many different metaphors used for cyber and all of them are useful in part. I think that's what my biggest takeaway has been after having all of these conversations through cyber.rir is that the space is so expansive and it touches our lives on so many different levels. You can go all the way up to the national security and geopolitical level and all the way down to the personal level, what's affecting you and your neighbor and your grandmother. And those are such different spaces that it's hard to use one metaphor to apply it to all of those. I mean, it's hard to come up with solutions that span all of those areas as well. In addition, we have so many stakeholders who have equities in this space, public and private sector, for sure, civil society organizations, absolutely. But then even if you drill down into what it looks like for the public sector to care about this, there are so many entities at the federal level that are interested in this topic. There are so many entities at the state and local level who should be interested in this topic and thinking about increasing resilience of critical infrastructure, state and local level. And all of those stakeholders are going to be approaching this topic a little bit differently. So I'm all for using cyber war as a metaphor in some cases when we're thinking about foreign adversaries, but then also thinking about climate as a metaphor when we are talking about critical infrastructure and the way that we need to build resilience there. This is such a tough one because we were thinking through the podcast and when I was, I was, I was learning more about what cybersecurity meant, I came across so many of these different metaphors, you know, cyber as a, you know, the public health system type, cyber as a domain, cyber as a battlefield. I mean, there's just so many different ways that people try to frame or give context to what cybersecurity or, or cyber means. But I think that as cyber as a domain evolves, so will the metaphors that we have to use to explain it to people. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges is how do you make something as complicated and as murky as cybersecurity or some areas of technology explainable and accessible to people, particularly as we think of how cyber affects, like Michaela said, the, the geopolitical nation state level down to, you know, trying to explain to your mom why she has to use multi-factor authentication. You know, you can't use the same explanatory metaphors for Russia versus China versus US to, you know, why you need to have multiple passwords, things like that. So I think that's what's so exciting about the space is it's rapidly evolving. And that as policymakers or as thought leaders or whatever we would like to call ourselves in this space, we're going to have to be creative in how we explain these complex issues to people. 
which is why our podcasts and also yours are so exciting because this is a venue to do just that. I'm sure a lot of the people who listen to cyber.rar are cyber nerds and people who are domain experts and have a lot of experience and interest in this area. But for people who maybe are less familiar with the space, what is one issue that you think folks should be paying more attention to? There are a couple of different issues that I think are relevant for the individual who is not up to speed or interested in hearing about cybersecurity all the time. And the first one is privacy of one's own data. How do you protect your accounts and your identities online to make sure that those aren't being exploited or leveraged against without your permission? That's a huge one. And that gets to everything, everything from password protection and using a password manager to just being safe online and being aware of all of the digital exhaust that comes from the use of all of the many devices that we use. The other thing that I think is increasingly important, and in some ways it overlaps with cybersecurity and in some ways it doesn't, but it's the way that mis- and disinformation and online harassment has been proliferating. And it's to the point where we don't fully understand how and why some people are targeted and harassed and doxxed on a regular basis or sometimes out of the blue. There are a, a number of ways that you can protect yourself from that. And a lot of people don't know how to do that and are often at risk when they are a more vulnerable or marginalized part of a vulnerable or marginalized community. So that's something that I think is increasingly important, not only because you can be at risk of your information being stolen, but it feels personal and it feels emotional. And managing that mental and emotional part, as well as managing your digital security is incredibly important. So then last question, did you pass the class? I hope we did. Michaela, I actually haven't checked what grade we got. We did graduate. I I did graduate as well as one of my other co-hosts, Danny. So I think we're okay. The most important part for us has been developing this group of friends and colleagues who are working this space. I'm really excited to continue my career in this world alongside these incredible other women and non-binary individuals who I know are going to have my back who I can go to for advice, and who are brilliant, brilliant people in this space as well. Yeah, truly. It's it's just so exciting to be part of a, a group of incredible people and to have really tough conversations that a lot of times we don't know the answers to and have that space to question each other and have that level of friendship and trust where we can really push each other to think outside the box, think creatively, and, and answer those tough questions. Um, so I'm I'm really grateful that we had the ability to to take this class and get, you know, get a grade for it, get credit for it. And now we've got this podcast and it's going to grow into hopefully a multi multi-season endeavor and really excited. So now it's the Cyber Rars turn to interview us. So have at it guys, what questions do you have for us? The tables have turned. We're excited to interview you both. So I think the first question is, you're celebrating almost a year of Next Informed Policy. You've got 30 plus episodes. 
which is incredible. What are some key takeaways, lessons learned, or any wisdom you would give to us as we as we endeavor to, to get to that point too? The first thing I would say is plan ahead as much as you can. You guys are a seasonal show, which is super helpful and that like you guys can plan a really thoughtful encapsulated run of like 10 episodes where you can go deep on something. We sort of bounce around all over the place, which is good in some ways and difficult in others. And all of us are doing this for fun and because we find it important. As you get out of school and have less time to do things that you think are fun and important, having a good plan is 90% of the battle so that when you show up to record, you can just do it in the hour or two that you have laid out and not have to constantly be churning and thinking about it all the time. I think my advice is that if it seems like an interesting topic to a friend of yours, it probably is. I think that early on, Grant and I, like we wanted, I think we wanted to tackle really serious topics. And over time, we've been able to be a little bit more creative and experimental and and also just talk about things that are fun and interesting. So we did an episode on how sports relates to foreign policy and how food and cooking relates to foreign policy. We did an episode on UAPs, unidentified aerial phenomena like UFOs. That was fun. And all of these topics have dimensions that are that are quite serious and sober and, you know, are really critical for national security. But it's also nice to have fun. I loved the food and cooking episode. I thought that was great. <laughs> Yeah. And I think you end up surfacing kind of like interesting and unexpected perspectives when you're willing to think about intersections that may not be obvious, you know, on the surface. Yeah. I love that your podcast looks at some of these interesting nexuses. Do you feel like there are some intersections that the national security and foreign policy apparatus should be spending more time investing in or focusing on? It's definitely the information and culture space. We sort of hit on it in the show in, in different ways. One of the conversations we had with Ben Sol, right as the Ukraine war was kicking off, he talked about how Russians view warfare as always including information warfare because they see it as a subnational issue, right? The proletariat versus the bourgeoisie always this kind of problem, but that's subnational. As Americans, we tend to see other countries as unitary actors. Russia is doing X or China is doing Y when these are like massive countries with like millions or billions of people that have their own interests and ways of thinking about things. And I think the more we incorporate culture and information and the way we talk to each other into our national security understanding, the better we'll be. But that's hard because America is a place where we don't want to see a DOD-run media company. We don't want to see a, here's the American line on things. And so I think that's going to be hard for us to deal with. But I think in the space we're in with social media, with an internet that's connected everyone from all corners of the globe, it only becomes more important for us to solve that question. I think I would like to see an expansion of the scope and understanding of what national security is. So I think historically, 
people were quite focused on defense and military related issues. And I think over time, we've gradually come to understand that global health issues are also national security issues and climate issues are national security issues and human rights is, na- is national security. And, and I think that we have tried to have a very expansive understanding of what national security is in, uh, in curating the show. And I would like to see that translate more broadly into the field writ large. Zoe, that's such a good point in the fact that we can't have silos when we think about national security anymore. It's so much more expansive, particularly with broad transnational issues like cybersecurity or climate change that do not subscribe to any type of border. That is something that will impact all of our careers as well as we move forward. So I wanted to follow up on that, actually. And, you know, we were I was in D.C. this summer, now back up in Cambridge, and it was a very busy summer for Congress. A lot lot of a lot of big, a lot of a lot of some serious action on the Hill. But I'm curious what you both think about the role of Congress and what role it should play in legislating areas like cybersecurity policy and tech, particularly given to Grant's point that we are a country that doesn't have one single view and we and that is a, both a benefit and a challenge. So I'm, I'm curious what your role, what your thoughts are on how the Hill plays into all of this. I'm going to step back in answering that a little bit. You know, I always find it quite funny that in, for example, presidential elections, the areas that people really focus on presidential debates and so forth are typically issues where the executive branch actually doesn't have a whole lot of control, like they focus on healthcare and taxes and so forth, which always requires like congressional participation. And yet the areas where the executive branch has a lot of unilateral authority, which is generally foreign policy and national security, ends up often figuring into the conversation in more of a secondary way. And I don't know if that stems from just a sort of general lack of understanding among the American public about what branches of government have more control over different areas. But I think for for people that are well-versed in these topics, you know, it's very clear that the president has a great deal of power to act in the best interest of U.S. national security, however the administration may define it, obviously with some limits, but, but there's just way more leeway and autonomy in that realm than in a lot of other domestic issues. So, you know, I think over time, as a historical matter, we've seen ways in which Congress has tried to become more engaged in foreign policy issues, um, whether it relates to sanctions or, you know, to, to various authorizations for engagement in conflict and war and so forth. And I think cyber security issues are another place where Congress can play a bigger role and and probably should. So I'll sort of also sidestep the question and answer it in a slightly different way as well, which is to say that Congress can and should play a role in cyber. It should be really looking at these companies, which are now the largest companies in the United States. They bring in the most profit. They have some of them have the most number of employees. It really touches so many different sectors of the way we traditionally think about policymaking, that it would be foolish to say that the government shouldn't step in in some way. Now, the reason why there's a little trepidation in actually having Congress step in is that 
Congress has failed to effectively staff itself to deal with these issues. Following the 1990s, Newt Gingrich decided that there were too many people in Congress and they were spending too much of their budget on staff. And they significantly cut down both personal staff and committee staff, as well as the Office of Technology Assessment, which is a whole office that was dedicated to staying on top of these things in Congress. And so because of the limits we have on spending for staff and the limits on sort of personnel that we have in Congress, we've really failed to adequately stay on top of these emerging trends. And I think it's significantly negatively impacted our ability to make sound policy at a congressional level and also has hurt the constitutional order by failing to right-size the relationship between the legislative and executive branches. So I think there's a lot of work to be done there as well, and not just saying Congress should haul Jack Dorsey back up to the hill and yell at him some more about why their email doesn't work. We need real staff who know what they're talking about, and it shouldn't just be three or four offices or the Cyber Solarium Commission being the sole thinkers around these issues. They're too complex, they're too big, and they're too many stakeholders to have five 25-year-old staff members on Capitol Hill legislate for everything. The point you made there is so true and is an area we talk about on our podcast and that I think about all the time is this talent pipeline, is that it's so difficult for young people to get into government. That's the first level that's challenged security clearances, long processing time, et cetera. And then we haven't even gotten to the technical staff yet, right? People with technical expertise, how do you drag them out of the private sector and into the government where they're going to be running into a lot more bureaucratic issues? And then also like that, like the like New Gingrich took away the office and, and that was it. And what can you do? So I think I think that tech pipe, the talent pipeline is such a major issue. And I would definitely love to do a full episode on that And Zoe, I'm curious from your perspective, you know, you're involved in venture capital and your experience, how you see that, that talent pipeline, particularly when we think about emerging tech and innovation, getting that type of talent into the government. A lot has been said about the fact that, you know, the government needs to have more tech talent and more folks with engineering backgrounds in order to be able to craft thoughtful and sound policies and legislation related to these issues. So I think that that fact is is very well known. And I think now the big challenge is figuring out all of the mechanisms for enabling people in the private sector to, to do short-term tours of duty in government in one capacity or another and be able to, you know, expedite some of the multi-month, in some case multi-year hiring processes that that are associated with with lots of government employment. I'm not I'm definitely not an expert on on that topic and on government hiring practices generally, but I am glad that there are a number of both I would say public sector and also private sector efforts to try to address this and you know there's uh like tech congress fellows and and so forth that I think are a really good step in that direction. Yeah, the White House just held a National Cyber Workforce and Education Summit. And so I'm also hopeful that some of these new initiatives that have been popping up and getting actual backing behind them will be will be successful. I'd love to dive a little bit deeper with your 
PC expertise, Zoe, and, and ask a question that I've been curious about for a little while. I'm curious as to how VCs assess and manage risk and the way that it's evolved to consider cybersecurity risks or geostrategic risk, climate risk, what that process has looked like and what big issues you think are top of mind for VCs in a way that maybe they haven't been in the past. Investors are becoming more conscious of the fact that cybersecurity risks, but also regulatory and policy risks are meaningful threats to startups. And I think there has been this playbook in Silicon Valley for a long time, which is like, just go forward and build your product. And maybe, you know, it is at odds with some of the local regulations and so forth, but that's how you scale and that's how you succeed. And, you know, in some cases that playbook maybe has worked, but I think that, I think that the tone has, has changed a little bit. And, uh, and, and I think that especially in some of these areas of emerging technology, like artificial intelligence, machine learning, and, and crypto and web three, changing regulation and a rapidly evolving regulatory landscape is going to determine or help determine which companies are ultimately successful in a space. So I think, you know, the smart investors out there as part of their diligence process are trying to assess to what extent founding teams are taking into account legal and regulatory issues as they think about how to structure and build their businesses and doing it in a smart and thoughtful and sophisticated way. That's very heartening. Hopefully uh, there's good, smart, strategic investors, like you mentioned, that are making more of those decisions instead of investing more of the ideas from folks that are not necessarily intending to have positive impacts on the world. Well, one of the things that Zoe and I sort of talked about offline is how the looming global recession, slow down supply chain issues are going to change the way the sector sort of looks at itself and works, right? So crypto was super duper bubbly and it is no longer super duper bubbly. And that means a lot of companies, a lot of initial coin offerings, NFTs, basically all got killed. Um, and that doesn't make them necessarily bad companies, but it does mean that there's going to be a lot of more competition in the space for better, smarter, faster companies, which means that those companies and investors that take into account geopolitical risk, that take into account the regulatory environment will be more successful. It used to be that you could put a bunch of dumb money in something have a company that doesn't run a profit for 20 years and be totally fine. Now that the economy is sort of shifting under our feet, that model is not going to work anymore. And there's going to be some interesting fallout on that, both in the cyber and tech space, but also in the broader international field, how that's going to impact governments, especially in developing countries. I think that's that point on market headwind changing. And really, we're not going to have the same dry powder that the industry's had for the last yeah 10 to 20 years, arguably, will bring out, I think, a lot of interesting winners and really kind of cull some of the losers. But I also think an interesting point, as we see this market shift, what is the role that the US government and these innovation hubs that are across the DOD and the Department of Energy as well has a lot of great loan programs? What role can the US government play as the market changes to step in where private private investors don't want to take the risk. The critical minerals supply chain space is really interesting. 
It's kind of where I think EVs were when the Department of Energy stepped in and gave money to Solyndra and then later Tesla, obviously, which was a huge success, Solyndra, not so much. But is that model going to be even more important as the market headwinds changes and we see VCs and other private capital stepping back and not wanting to take as much of a risk? And maybe now we can have the government or areas of the US government step in to keep some interesting companies that have national security implications. Companies that have important national security implications. So I'm very eager to see how how that trend evolves. Venture capital, even when it's done really well, isn't a be all end all for some of these issues already. Just because the market is moving, there was still an issue with sort of medium sized companies getting effectively pushed out of the market. VC has a a push to grow fast and grow large. And that doesn't always work, especially when it comes to government contractors or defense-minded organizations. That's just not the right model to think about. And then also the sort of long-term big thinking around social and societal ills. That's really hard for venture capital to do because some of that's just not a money-making thing. You know, like the effective and just use of AI is probably not the first thing that VC is going to invest in. They're going to figure out how to use it to make more money in a variety of ways. And so those are places that government already has to step in and, and has had to step in. So I think we'll see hopefully more from DARPA, IARPA, and other groups like that in QTEL, which I know some of us on this call know pretty well. But ultimately, I think the U.S. is bad at picking winners and losers. And we're never going to be really, really good venture capitalists. That's not the government's role. We're never going to be good at it. But what we can be good at is pushing scientific research, pushing general knowledge, and growing that base and helping workforce development so that great companies can do great things. But Zoe, I'd be interested in your perspective on that. Do you think the government's going to expand the role? I mean... I don't know. I feel like the budget's going to get tighter on stuff. And the first thing that gets cut is like moonshot research from DARPA, you know? Yeah, I don't know that I'm in a good position to like predict where government funding is going to go. But I do think that, Grant, the point that you made about it being difficult to fund certain areas of technology that are addressing public goods or issues of the public commons, et cetera, or things that are more impact oriented is right on the money. And I think the incentives created by a lot of private capital markets makes it hard for, you know, a founder or any sort of technologist to focus on building for the public good, right? Like they're, they're focused on go to market and sales and customers and, and so forth. And so I do think that there should be more mechanisms for funding Things like open source tools or non-revenue generating projects or projects that are more research oriented rather than product oriented. I would definitely plug the the Open Tech Fund, which is run independently but is is congressionally funded or government funded. And you know they have a long history of funding things like Signal and Tor and lots of technology that you know helps to advance freedom of expression and civil liberties and so forth. And yet their budget from a congressional funding standpoint, is is relatively small. And I, I would love to see the government funding OTF in a much bigger way. 
So with that, let's turn to our final segment, which is normally where we talk about something we're following either culturally or politically. But since this is a pod-heavy episode, we're going to talk about podcasts, and we're each going to talk about podcasts that we would recommend or, or one that makes us think. So Zoe, why don't you kick us off? I'm going to plug a really fun podcast that I love to listen to, which is called Scam Goddess. And if you liked hearing about the stories of Anna Delvey or Elizabeth Holmes, you will love Scam Goddess. It's a weekly podcast that delves into lots of different historical frauds, current frauds, current scams, etc. It's really fun. If you like true crime, etc., it has that flavor to it. Um, so would definitely recommend that folks take a listen when they want something a little bit lighter. Bethan, what do you think we should be listening to? One, I'm very excited to listen to Scam Goddess because I'm a big true crime fan. I did love becoming Anna. <laughs> oh, The podcast that I am very excited about is Tech Unmanned. It's hosted by Lindsay Shepard and Caitlin Johnson over at CSIS. And what I love about it is one, it's two women hosts, which we love to see. And then two, they bring in a lot of really interesting and thoughtful experts to talk about to kind of break through the national security jargon and technology, as they call it, hand-waving, to get to the core issues about what are the defense issues and modernization priorities for the U.S. defense enterprise at large. So I really love that it's very engaging. I've learned a ton, and it's always very exciting to see women's voices leading in these spaces. So I would absolutely recommend that you give it a listen. Michaela, what are you listening to? A podcast that I love is called Iron Butterfly. And I know Grant has, has maybe been involved in its genesis, but it's such a great podcast run by AWIC, the amazing women of the IC, the intelligence community. It's made by and for women in the IC, and they have great interviews with America's unsung heroines in national security. My favorite part about it is also that they always share a favorite code name or uh, make up a code name for the guest, which is just a really wonderful and exciting way to end an episode. Perfect. So I'm going to take host prerogative and really mess up my own question. So the first thing is I'll do some log rolling. Next in Foreign Policy is part of the DSR network where I work and I touch almost every show. Uh, so if you don't already listen to Deep State Radio, Words Matter, Secret Life of Cookies, uh, the other show I host, which is a daily show called the DSR Daily Brief, the real show that I would suggest that you listen to is called Slate's Spoiler Special. I'm a big Slate person. I listen to almost all their podcasts. But the, the reason why I love the Spoiler Special is it's a culture podcast that is okay with spoiling movies and TV shows. So they give you a whole plot synopsis. They then go deep and sort of talk about their review of it, as well as, you know, metaphors and symbolism and all that kind of stuff that you don't get in typical reviews. And I'm someone who loves spoiling things before I actually watch them. So I really enjoy it and would highly recommend it. And finally, I would be remiss to not say that Next in Foreign Policy has been one of the joys of the last year for me. Getting to know and work with Zoe has been amazing. Uh, we've talked to so many great people over the last year to know that we've been able to really highlight some good people that have gone on to join the administration or like 
blow up in their importance on social media is awesome because we know that we're doing something good and important. And if I have one wish for Cyber Roar, it's that you guys have as much joy as we have and that you continue to find ways to lift up other people in your work. With that, thanks for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative and is a proud member of the DSR Network. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find the show. You can follow me online at Grant Haver. You can follow Zoe at Z Weinberg, Bethan at Saunders Bethan, and Michaela at Twister Lee. If you're a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, be sure to follow the link in the show notes. This week's episode is brought to you by Mark Andreessen, Yimby and the Tweets, Nimby in his streets. Join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy. Foreign policy.